not all of us are meek. So yeah, so that's uh, Talking Earth for you this episode. Uh, do want to thank our my our three poets, Endi Bogardigan, Joe Softy, and Kelly Terwilliger. Thanks to Engineer Angel Patrick Bocard, to KBU, and all who support it, and especially those of you who visit the Talking Earth. So I still have a, a minute to talk, and just want to again encourage poetry. And um, we need more venues here in town. I do want to thank the folks at Rose City Book Pub. More poetry readings have been happening there, some jazz as well, uh, music of all kinds. It looks like uh, Rose City. Book pub people might be getting involved in a second location and uh, have events there too. So, yeah, if you happen to be the owner or manager of a club bar space that has performances, so please consider having poetry. It's sometimes hard to find someone to host it, but it's always easy to find poets. As I say, it's easier to find poets to read than it is to find people to come and listen to them. So again, thanks to everyone here who's been listening. Thanks to all the poets. There's a, the vi- vibracity, the v- vibrance-ness, the vibrance of the words. Yeah, and the words still tumble over themselves. There are so many of them. But uh, once again, I'm Dan Raphael, and uh, this is the Talking Girth. Thanks for visiting. judgment without bias or us all eclectic pandemic 503 at gmail.com every fourth monday 11 p.m to midnight here on your community radio station kboo portland portland this is kboo portland community radio for the pacific northwest stay tuned at midnight for self-help radio right now it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups, Gremlin Time. 
Good evening and welcome to Gremlin Times. It's Fortunato. Let's see, this is the bedtime radio show for grown-ups. And uh, I'm actually going to read tonight. And I've come across a book that I've just, uh, I want to share some pieces uh, with you. Um, occasionally, you know, I like to do fiction, and, but uh, we're going to do some non-fiction today. You know, in the past, I've talked about other aspects of show business. I did write some uh, pieces about uh, comedians and uh, also uh, film directors like Michael Curtiz. This is from a book called Cameraman by Dana Stevens. Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. So I'm going to read an interesting piece here. This is chapter 13. It's about Mabel Norman and uh, many of the other women who were in Hollywood in the silent era. And so this is called Mabel at the Wheel. During the same years as Buster Keaton was entering motion pictures, a phenomenon was taking place in the business that would not become visible or at any rate be considered worthy of no notice for about a hundred years. More precisely, a trend that had characterized the medium's first two decades was in steep decline. Women, who until around 1916 had wielded a degree of power in the film industry unmatched to the present day were vanishing from the high places they had occupied and being shunted into the narrow space that would be allotted for the rest of the 20th century and into our own. For that short span of time, though, the same years Buster was growing up as a child phenomena in vaudeville, but now seems like a shockingly high number of women held positions of real creative power in the world of film. This is not to say that the industry's gender balance was anywhere near equitable. As a cutting-edge technology with mass money-making potential, the new medium remained predominantly the providence of men. But a higher percentage of American movies were directed by women in 1916 than had been true in any year since. A bracing reminder that gender discrimination in the film industry is about as old as the Model T Ford and, unlike that long obsolete vehicle, still rolling. A telling of the film industry that might have been would start with Alice Guy, the French filmmaker who began as a secretary at Paris's Gamont studio in 1896. She was only 25 when she made her first film two years later, a whimsical fantasy called The Cabbage Fairy that was one of the first ever filmed narratives and also at a running time of almost one minute one of the longest movies yet made. In 1910, Guy moved to Long Island to launch the Solax Film Company with her husband and collaborator, Herbert Blanchet, who would direct Buster in The Saphead in 1920. By then, Guy had directed hundreds of movies, including one of the first multi-reel features, a four-reel dramatization of The Life of Christ. A few years later, Lois Weber, the American director and screenwriter who spearheaded the uplift movement, became the most successful female filmmaker in early Hollywood and one of the first directors of any sex to receive billing above the title. 
Weber's films with titles like Two Wise Wives, T-O-O, Two Wise Wives, Where Are My Children, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle were social issue melodramas that lent middle-class respectability to such taboo topics as birth control, divorce, and quote-unquote white slavery, a genteely racist euphemism for enforced prostitution. Then there was, quote-unquote, the serial queen craze. For a while in the mid-1910s, every production company seemed to have its own fearlessly athletic female star. Pearl White at Passé Friez, Catherine Williams at Seleg Poliscope, Helen Holmes at Calum. These prototypical new women, often using their own first names as their characters, chased would-be robbers on horseback or leapt from motorcycles onto the sides of moving trains. Holmes, in real life the daughter of a railway clerk, played an indomitable railroad telegraph operator in the long-running serial The Hazards of Helen, also serving as the film's producer, writer, stunt woman, and animal trainer. In 1916, she told an interviewer that if a photoplay actress wants to achieve real thrills, she must write them into the scenario herself. And the reason is odd. Nearly all scenario writers and authors for the films are men, and men usually don't provide for a girl things to do that they wouldn't do themselves. So if I want a real thrilly action, I ask permission to write it myself. Holmes' serials, many of them directed by her husband, J.P. McGowan, remain thrilly to this day, not least because in most of the episodes that survive, our heroine, Helen, pursues her dual passions of railway telegraphy and bad guy walloping with nary a romantic subplot in sight. Holmes may not match Keaton in acrobatic virtuosity, but she's every bit his equal for sheer physical courage. Watch her ride a motorcycle at top speed off a high bridge in the wild engine or dangle over a railroad trestle to land on the roof of a moving train in the escape on the fast freight. The most powerful woman in Hollywood in the 1910s was unquestionably Mary Pickford, a one-woman media conglomerate who rose from a rough childhood spent touring the country in juvenile dramatic roles to become, by 1916, the highest paid performer in all of show business. Barely over five feet tall, with a round angelic face, a childlike frame, and a dense mass of pale gold sausage curls, she was adored by audiences with a fervency that is hard to comprehend to our celebrity slated era. Photoplay critic Julian Johnson, whose long-lived Impressions column was a poetic tribute to the charms of a different actor or actress each month, compared Pickford to, quote, Dawn over a daisy-filled meadow, the spirit of spring imprisoned in a woman's body, the first child in the world, unquote. But 
Pickford's appeal also lay in the implacable force of will she manifested both on screen and off. To further quote the besotted Johnson, her luminous tenderness was contained within, quote, a steel band of gutter ferocity, unquote. A colleague of Johnson's at Photoplay, the splendidly named gossip columnist Delight Evans, answered his florid tribute with a simpler formulation. But one does not understand Mary Pickford. One loves her. Many of Pickford's films deliberately play on her trademark mix of childlike sweetness and iron tenacity. One of her most acclaimed, Stella Morris, divides her into two separate characters, a co-setted beauty and a plain, desperately poor orphan via the technique of split screen. Pickford's fame was so meteoric and her bargaining skills so legendary that she changed the balance of labor relations in the industry, helping to initiate the era of the movie star as free agent. In 1916, a few months after Charlie Chaplin signed a record-breaking contract with the Mutual Film Corporation for $670,000 a year, Pickford walked into Aldo Adolf Zucker's office at Paramount and demanded the same salary, plus half the profits from her films, over which she was to have a full creative control. Her total yearly take at Paramount was over $1 million, or around $18 million in today's dollars. When she left her first husband, actor Owen Moore, for the swashbuckling action star Douglas Fairbanks, also married at the time, Pickford not only escaped the public censure that generally followed divorce, but also reigned on uncontested as America's first cinematic sweetheart. The couple's Beverly Hills mansion, grandly dubbed Pickfair, became an obligatory American stopover for anyone from visiting foreign royalty to Mr. and Mrs. Albert Einstein, and was always open to Fairbanks' best friend, Charlie Chaplin. In 1919, the three of them, along with D.W. Griffith, would form United Artists, originally a film distribution, a, a film distributor designed to break the major studio's grip on the market by releasing movies from the creator's independently financed companies. United Artists provided an early model for what independent distribution and production might look like, even as the studio system was congealing into place. UA released some of the most acclaimed pictures of the silent era, including Mary Pickford's Sparrows, Douglas Fairbanks' Robin Hood, Rudolph Valentino's The Son of the Sheep, and after Joe Snack was made chairman of the company board in 1924, the last three independent features of Buster Keaton. Pickford's massive popularity and formidable bargaining skill, as well as her close association with some of the industry's most powerful men, allowed her to remain a formidable force in the film industry well after the careers of most of her 1910s colleagues had flamed out. And one of these women, and many others among them, the Russian theater legend turned avant-garde lesbian impresario Ali Nazimova, had the writing, directing, acting, producing comedy powerhouse Faye Tincher promisingly described in a 1918 press release as mercilessly autocratic when she directs men's activities, would merit her own chapter in a fuller account. 
But when I think of the female talent that was draining from the film business, just as Buster Keaton was entering it, the face that comes to mind first is Mabel Normans. That cameo-ready oval with huge dark eyes, a nervous smile, and the mobile features of a born comedian who, if things had gone differently in her life and in the industry, might have had as a life as long and filmography as lasting as Keaton's, Chaplin's, or Harold Lloyd's. Norman became as close as any woman in silent comedy to achieving that degree of success and creative freedom. To watch her films now, the majority have been lost, but dozens still survive and are widely available to ache for the future she might have had. But in her 38 years on Earth, over half of them spent in the motion picture business, she got a fair bit done. She was the first star, male or female, to have their name appear in the title of their films. The first actress to serve as her own director and among the first film performers to start their own self-named production companies. According to a Senate-generated legend, Norman was also the first film comedian to throw a pie in someone's face, though hurling pastries played a relatively small part in the Keystone joke repertoire, and at any rate, too many silent films are now lost to verify any such claim. In her own time, Norman was sometimes called the female chaplain. Her more widespread nickname, R. Mabel, gives a sense of the intimate connection she inspired in her fans. In a 1915 poll, she was chosen as the top female comedy star, with Chaplin as her male counterpart, and Mary Pickford as the favored leading actress. Back before movie actors were credited by name, the teenage Norman had become known as Vitagraph Betty for the character she played in a hit series of one-reelers for that company beginning around 1911, the indiscretions of Betty. Betty becomes a maid. How Betty won. The boy-crazy, practical-joke-loving Betty delighted audiences, but some critics found her a tad earthy. Her cross-dressing antics in The Troublesome Secretaries, 1911, drew a comment from one reviewer that though attractive Mabel Norman as Betty is extremely funny. He wished she had not been so free in her hugging and kissing, but had been more refined and dainty. After her time at Vitagraph, Mabel spent a couple of years working for D.W. Griffith at Biograph where Max Sennett was then running the studio's comedy arm. In addition to starring in a series of action-packed and mildly racy one-reelers for Max Sennett, The Driving Girl, The Fatal Chocolate, The Fickle Spaniard, Dash Through the Clouds, Hot Stuff, Oh, Those Eyes, Norman appeared in five melodramas under Griffith's direction. Often she was cast as the sultry brunette, antithesis of the more ethereal, blonde heroines the director preferred. The mender of nets, Mabel played a tragic temptress who steals the love interest of the ever-saintly Mary Pickford. 
But Griffith, never a filmmaker known for his sense of humor, disliked the impetuous and impertinent Norman. She had been known to mock the director behind his back on set and to spur other actresses, among them Lillian Gish's unsaintly sister Dorothy, into rowdy behavior, like going drinking after hours. In 1912, Sennett and Norman, by then involved in real life as well as the movie business, had left Biograph to launch Keystone, an independent all-comedy studio in the thinly settled Los Angeles suburb of Edendale. Over the next five years, they churned out hundreds of rough-and-tumble two-reel comedies with a revolving stock company of actors. Performers who launched their careers at Keystone included not just future slapstick greats like Chaplin, Arbuckle, Harold Lloyd, and Harry Langdon, but also cartoon-faced character comics with durable audience appeal. Fred Mace with his perpetually exasperated eyebrows, Ford Sterling with his square beard and sputtering rage takes, and good old rubber-limbed L. St. John, who, after working with Keaton and Arbuckle at Comanique, would co-star in a long-running Western comedy serial as a bearded cowboy sidekick named Fuzzy Q. Jones. Other silent stars who got their start at Keystone were the future sex symbol Gloria Swanson and the popular eccentric comedian Louise Fazenda, whose pigtailed and gingham-clad rube character was forever getting played by a succession of slick city cads. All these talents passed through Keystone on their way to other things, but Mabel, the only female member of the company present at its founding, along with Sennett, Sterling, and Mace, she was also, critically for the studio's early success, its public body. Her athletic curbs caused a sensation when she appeared in The Water Nymph, 1912, sheathed in one of the skin-tight, full-body bathing suits known as Kellerman suits after the vaudeville swimming sensation Annette Kellerman. Mabel could swim and dive like a seal and did her own stunts in countless water-based pratfalls. Her early aquatic feats made her the first in the venerable tradition of Senate's bathing beauties, who could be relied upon to periodically interrupt the movie's action with their narratively unmotivated ball games played in racy for the day beach get-ups. Senate sometimes appeared in his own films, usually as an ungainly oaf. He was a colorful, eccentric figure, an Irish Catholic immigrant from rural Quebec, known for conducting studio business from the huge marble and silver bathtub he had installed in his office. Sennett was a masterful public relations myth-maker and a keen spotter of new talent, even if he was too cheap to hold on to his strongest performers for long. But it was Mabel's mischievous, incandescent persona that served as both Keystone's chief artistic asset and its main marketing draw. In 1915, Julian Johnson, the same photoplay critic who rapturously praised business whiz Mary Pickford's childlike freshness, described Mabel as a kiss that explodes in a laugh, cherry bonbons in a clown's cap, sharing a cream puff from your best girl, a slap 
from a perfumed hand, the sugar on the keystone grapefruit. But behind the camera, as well as in front of it, Mabel's role went beyond mere sweetening. Director, as a job title, meant something less defined on a 1910s movie than it does in our auteur-focused age. As we've seen, Keaton and Arbuckle more or less traded off directorial responsibilities depending on who was in front of the camera. Slapstick comedy direction also overlapped with what would now be called screenwriting. Given that shooting scripts weren't used at all for most early two-reelers, Senate sometimes wrote up rough prose treatments of the storylines of upcoming films, but for the most part, comedies in the teens were something you made by taking a camera to a free outdoor location, working out ideas for gags and chases, then building a plot around them and shooting until you lost the light. Recalling his apprenticeship at Keystone, Chaplin wrote, All we needed was a park bench, a bucket of whitewash, and Mabel Norman. Even as the Buster Keaton studio a few years later, written scripts would be non-existent. Though Keaton meticulously planned out the set design, action sequences, and general storyline with his production crew and gag writing team. But at Keystone, two reelers were churned out in a hurtling rush often incorporating real-life events like car races or world's fairs, with Senate cutting every budgetary corner. Keystone casts and crew were not above sneaking into the sets of other films in production to shoot a scene or two. Norman remembered Thomas Ince, the celebrated producer of grand-scale westerns, yelling at Senate through a bullhorn to get those infernal clowns off my set. Actors had to hustle and improvise to set their performances apart from the mayhem that swirled around them, as first Arbuckle and then Chaplin managed to do. By the mid-teens, dramatic narrative film had become a respectable art form that drew increasingly middle-class audiences and was beginning to be seen as an author's medium. This shift corresponded with the rise of the feature-length film, tied to the emergence of named brand dramatic directors like D.W. Griffith, Lois Weber, and Cecil B. DeMille. But the de facto director of an early two-reel comedy was often the star, the performer whose rhythm set the film's pace, and who had the best sense of how to use the camera to capture his or hers comic choices. Mabel came to film not from vaudeville or the dramatic stage, but like her friend Norma Talmadge, from the world of modeling and advertising. As a young teenager, she had posed for influential fashion illustrators like Charles Dana Gibson and James Montgomery Flagg, embodying the Gibson girl type in all her bicycle riding, taboo breaking, suffrage demanding glory. Mabel's photographed, painted, or drawn image had sold Coca-Cola, dress patterns, luggage, and lingerie. By the time she made an impression as Vitagraph Betty, she was already a master at deploying the power of her pretty, protein face. 
But Mabel had higher artistic aspirations as well. Born into a working-class French-Irish family on Staten Island, she'd grown up with dreams of becoming an illustrator and had begun modeling to pay for art classes. Later, when she was rich enough to order frocks from Paris by the dozens and drive a car with a custom makeup table that folded down from the dashboard, she would travel with a full-time French tutor in her entourage and stock her home library with volumes of fashionable thinkers like Nietzsche and Freud. In late 1913, the trade papers announced that Mabel Norman, leading woman with Keystone, will hereafter direct every picture in which she appears. Madame Blanchet had been the only woman director for some time, but she now has a rival in Mabel, who will both act and direct. There's a healthy dose of Senate braggadocio in that statement. As we've seen, Alice Guy Blanchet was far from the only woman holding the reins behind the camera in this era. In fact, one of Lewis Weber's most innovative early one-reelers, Suspense, was released that same year, and both Pearl White and Helen Holmes had begun assembling the companies that would launch them as producers of their own action serials. Still, there was considerable novelty in the fact of a 21-year-old movie star, famous for her fearless diving stunts and the dark, expressive eyes one columnist described as luminous orbs, directing herself on screen. Given how loose the division of labor on a film set was at the time, it's hard to know exactly how much authoritarian power Norman had in the hundreds of films in which she appears. She is credited as sole director on around 16 titles and gets co-directing credit on a dozen more. But knowing how free a hand Senate gave her in the studio's day-to-day -day operations up until around 1915, it's likely she had extensive input on any film she appeared in, and some she didn't. Roscoe Arbuckle told a reporter visiting the set of one of his productions that Mabel alone is good for a dozen new suggestions in every picture. Later in the same profile, Norman drove the reporter to the ferry, volunteering the information that she had directed any number of Keystone films, including some of Chaplin's first on-screen appearances, and adding that she needed to hurry back to the studio to go over that day's rushes with Arbuckle. This evidence of Norman's creative clout at the studio notwithstanding, the article concludes on the image of the smitten writer bidding a reluctant goodbye to the pretty little star still hoping to uh, convince her to accompany him back on the ferry boat. A story about one of Norman's early collaborator, collaborations, early collaborations with Chaplin at Keystone offers a telling snapshot of how and why women's power in the industry waned after the mid-teens. The title of the two-reeler in question was appropriately was, appropriately enough, Mabel at the Wheel, 1914. In it, Norman's character, the girlfriend of a race car driver, winds up commandeering his car to win a race in his steed when he's kidnapped by a gang of villains led by Chaplin. As the project began, Norman was set to be the film's sole director, Chaplin, new to films, and only two months into what would turn out to be a year-long stay at Keystone had not yet committed to the tramp persona that would make his fortune. 
Though he had played a similarly costumed character in two of his earlier outings, Mabel's Strange Predicament, also directed by Norman, and Kid Auto Races at Venice. In Mabel at the Wheel, he plays a blustering bad guy plainly copied from the stock character of Keystone co-founder Ford Sterling, who had recently left the company and whom Chaplin had been hired in part to replace. Sennett had lured the 24-year-old stage comic into the movies after seeing him perform with Fred Carnot's Turing pantomime troupe. By the time of Mabel at the Wheel, Chaplin had already worked under several male directors at Keystone and had clashed with at least two of them. One was Henry Pathé Lerman, Lehman. One was Henry Pathé Lehman, who, a journeyman figure in the lore of early Hollywood, the opportunistic boyfriend of Arbuckle's alleged murder victim, Virginia Rapp, A photo survives of Lerman with hands on hips glaring at Chaplin with undisgusted antithope as the latter, in costume as the tramp, observes a scene from behind the camera. The other was a veteran director named George Nichols, who later played Mabel's father in a string of early 1920s features. Nichols had disliked his experience with Chaplin enough that, in the comedian's own words, he went to Senate saying, I was a son of a bitch to work with. Only weeks into his time at Keystone, Keaton was already gaining a reputation for his slowness on set and his perfectionist hard-headedness about doing things his way. These were qualities that would only intensify once Chaplin began making his own movies. Chaplin's reputation for foot-dragging was something that Keaton, chained for life to the two-shows-a-day vaudeville work ethic of his youth, sometimes spoke of in interviews with dry irony. Asked in 1958 about his early impressions of Chaplin, he replied, I was in love with him, same as everybody else. But following the great dictator, Keaton continued, was when he got good and lazy. By the time he decided on a subject and make it, it was three years later or something like that. For Keaton, who by 1958, had not had the chance to make a movie his own way for 30 years, the idea of having the resources to do so and throwing the opportunity away must have rankled. At any rate, on the set of Mabel at the Wheel, Chaplin came up against an obstacle he could not surmount, the humiliation of being directed by a woman, a young, pretty, and unusually powerful one at that. For a scene in which his character sprayed the racetrack with water to slow down Mabel's speeding car, Chaplin suggested a bit of business with the hose. What if he was to step on it by mistake, examine the nozzle to see what the problem was, and then spray himself full in the face? As any half-competent film historian will recognize, and Mabel, who had by then made dozens of comedies, surely understood, this was quite literally the oldest joke in the business, having been used by the Lumiere brothers in 1895 in their first ever piece of recorded slapstick. The sprayer sprayed, or something like that. When Mabel rejected Chaplin's idea, we have no time, we have no time, do as you're told, she cried according to a lengthy and unwittingly self-incriminating anecdote in Chaplin's autobiography, the studio's new hire sat down on the curb and refused to work, shutting down production for the rest of the day. 
Telling the story 50 years later, Chaplin recalls with unabated resentment that taking orders from his more experienced co-star nettled me for charming as Mabel was. I doubted her competence as a director. To be rushed by a male authority figure was one thing. Only a page earlier, Chaplin had described Nichols rejecting his ideas with the identical phrase, we have no time, no time. But to hear those words from the mouth of a 21-year-old woman playing opposite him as a spunky ingenue and one who in the end defeats and spurns his own unsympathetic character, that was enough, writes Chaplin simply. He told her as much in so many words. I'm sorry, Miss Norman. I will not do what I'm told. I don't think you are competent to tell me what to do. After the day's shoot wrapped early, the crew, loyal to Mabel, was furious. One or two extras, Mabel told me afterwards, wanted to slug me, but she stopped them from doing so, recalls Chaplin, providing evidence of her fair treatment of him even as he looks for an opportunity to pout. Back at the studio that night, while the comedian was removing his grease bait, Senate burst in and read him the riot act, taking Mabel's side. You'll do what you're told or get out. Chaplin rode the streetcar home that night with a fellow keystoner speculating fretfully about the firing that both assumed was imminent. But the next day, when Chaplin got to the studio, Senna was conciliatory, encouraging him to swallow his pride and help out, including doing his best to get along with Mabel. To add insult to injury, their conversation was conducted in Mabel's dressing room, which was empty at the time, because, writes Chaplin, she was in the projection room looking at the rushes, as directors will do. Though Chaplin professed the greatest respect and admiration for Miss Norman, he did not apologize for his treatment of her the previous day, nor did he hesitate to reiterate to his new boss and Mabel's then fiancé his doubts about her basic competence, based only, he assured Senate, on her extreme youth. Norman was three years younger than Chaplin and had about five years' experience in filmmaking to his none. Chaplin's telling of this story implies that the reins of the film in production were handed over to him by Senate then and there, and also that he negotiated the right to direct himself in his next picture on the spot. In fact, Senate himself seemed to have taken over the direction of Mabel at the wheel, sharing on-screen credit with Norman. And for the next several films she made with Chaplin, she continued to be credited as either the director or co-director. But through Chaplin's framing of the story, like much of his autobiography may err in the direction of self-aggrandizement, his larger point stands. By the time Mac took over Mabel at the wheel, Mabel's real-life turn in the driver's seat was almost up, while Chaplin's was just beginning. After a number of successful directorial outings, some on her own and some in collaboration with Senate, Chaplin, Roscoe Arbuckle, or Nichols, Mabel would receive her last behind-the-camera credit around a year later on the also appropriately titled Mabel Lost in One. By 1916, she was telling a picture play reporter, the same one who clung to the hope she would skip out on work to join him on the ferry, that she had once been a Keystone director herself, but now preferred to focus on acting. 
whether or not the conversation between Chaplin and Senate in Mabel's dressing room really happened, as Chaplin describes it. His recollection of Mabel at the wheel at the, his recollection of the Mabel at the wheel incident, which takes up three solid pages of his autobiography, shows how and why the film industry began closing its top ranks off to women, just as it became clear this new business was shaping up to be big business. In a pithier example of the same phenomena, Senate's memoir erases the incident completely. Speaking of Mabel at the wheel, he recalls simply, I directed that one and Mabel Norman acted in it. Senate's newfound patience with Chaplin, it turned out, had an economic motive. The morning after Chaplin's and Mabel's onset row, Mac had received a telegram from the money man in the studio's New York office, pressuring him to keep the Chaplin product coming as the studio's new acquisition was becoming a box office draw. Other companies would soon come sniffing for Chaplin, and by the end of that year, he would sign the first in a series of ever more lucrative independent contracts. In a long serial interview given to Liberty Magazine in 1928, two years after she had retired from pictures and published after her death in 1930, Norman describes working with Chaplin in terms almost identical to those Buster Keaton would use in recalling his process with Roscoe Arbuckle. We reciprocated. I would direct Charlie in his scene and he would direct me in mine. But if Arbuckle and Keaton had a relationship in which the pupil quickly became his mentor's equal, Norman and Chaplin had one in which the student effectively usurped the teacher's place in the middle of an early lesson and got her demoted, while the principal, Max Sennett, nodded tacit approval. He would argue that Chaplin's innate gifts were so ready to flower at that moment that further apprenticeship was unnecessary. But you might also maintain that in 1914, Norman's gifts were at an equally critical place in their development, and that undermining this young female director's authority on set and in private with her producer boyfriend was one of the most damaging things a rising star of the company could do. The reciprocity of relationship taken for granted in a partnership between two men was simply not guaranteed in the same professional relationship across genders. In justifying his kneecapping of Norman to his reader and himself, Chaplin strikes a half-apologetic, if gratingly condescending note. I also was susceptible to her charm and beauty and secretly had a soft spot in my heart for her. But this was my work. Fifty-plus years later, after those words were written, and more than 100 since Mabel was disrespected on her own set, the obvious comeback still presents itself. What about her work? How might film industry have been different if, after an apprenticeship with D.W. Griffith and a long collaboration relationship with both Senate and Arbuckle, Mabel Norman had gotten the chance to direct and star in exactly the films she wanted to make with the cast, crew, and stories she chose? The way every male comedian, <clears throat> the way every male comedian of her stature in her generation got to do. That this never happened is not solely the fault of an increasingly patriarchal system of power transmission within the film industry. 
There was also Norman's own chronically ill body, presented in the press as continually beset by vague maladies. Well, behind the scenes, she struggled with the chronic tuberculosis that would kill her at age 37. And with an addiction to both alcohol and the opium-laced cough syrup she referred to as my goop, there may have been other drugs in the mix as well. It's impossible now to conclude whether years of persistent tabloid innuendo about the inside dope on Mabel's fragile physical condition had any basis in fact. But there's no doubt that in her later roles, after a stint at a convalescent farm, she seems altered. Her face thin and drawn, her movements stiffer and more cautious. Something else seems to have happened to shake Norman's power at Keystone between 1914 and 1916. When her name dropped off the directing roster and became associated with leading ladyhood alone, according to a much retold and possibly a cryptical story, Albert One recounted incredible detail 60 years later by Mabel's co-star and close friend, Minta Dufresne, the first Mrs. Roscoe Arbuckle, one afternoon in mid-1915, only weeks before her long-scheduled wedding to Senate was set to take place, Mabel walked in on Mac in fragilent delecto with the newly hired bathing beauty and Mabel's friend, May Bush. In the melee that ensured, Norman sustained a serious blow to the head, allegedly after Bush flung a vase in her direction. Senate's blustering as told to autobiography offers a heavily sanitized version of this tale, in which he and an unnamed actress were simply having dinner to discuss her upcoming role, and Mabel, misunderstanding, stormed out and faked an injury afterwards, going so far as to come to the set the next day with her arm in a sling. Adele Rogers St. John's, as given to the fabrication as she was fixated on her subject's suffering, wrote in her memoir that she, Mabel, and others were having dinner at a seaside restaurant when the actress, distraught over Max cheating, attempted suicide by throwing herself off the Santa Monica Pier. Whoever's story, if anyone's, is true, Norman did suffer a head injury that year serious enough to put her in the hospital for several weeks. While the press hyperventilated as if training for the decade of Mabel Norman scandals still ahead, Mabel Norman finding death blared a story in the Los Angeles Herald that attributed the wound to an unspecified onset accident. To contextualize the drama of that headline, it's worth noting that only weeks earlier, Photo Players Weekly had run a story headlined, Octopus Seizes Mabel Norman. The studio put out a cover story. While filming a wedding scene with Roscoe, Norman had been hit in the head with a thrown boot. To add to the confusion, in an interview a year after the mysterious incident, Norman appeared to make light of the whole affair, explaining that her hospitalization had been the result of an onset accident in which Roscoe sat on her head by mistake. The proliferation of contradictory stories combined with Norman's coy deflection make it seem likely that whatever took place was something both she and the studio wanted to keep under wraps. At any rate, this period marks the end of Norman's and Senate's romantic involvement, which as both acknowledge was rocky to begin with. Senate continued as her producer at Keystone until 1918 and returned to making films with her in the early 20s. But the severing of that romantic connection may have handicapped Norman in her rise in the film world, 
just as earlier female creators, including Lois Weber and Alice Gee, had at first found their professional fortunes tied to those of their producer husbands and business partners. Then came Norman's peripheral involvement with a series of film industry scandals in the early 1920s. Though she had nothing to do with the 1921 hotel party that led to Roscoe Arbuckle's downfall, her longtime on-screen partnership with the beloved comic associated her, in the public's mind, with the unwholesome off-camera doings of Hollywood fun makers. Less than a year later came the killing of the director William Desmond Taylor, a friend of Norman's whom, by pure chance, she had visited at home on the evening of his still unsolved murder, leaving only minutes before a neighbor overheard the shot that killed him. In 1924, with the Taylor murder still being combed over by a sensation-hungry press, she was back in the tabloids when her chauffeur shot the oil tycoon heir Cortland Dines after a long day of partying at which Mabel Dines and Chaplin's leading lady, Edna Provence, were all present. Even though the second shooting was uh, non-fatal, Norman was cleared of all wrongdoing in both cases, the Taylor and Dines scandals dominated headlines for months and permanently stained her reputation. Just like Keaton, Norman was often her own worst enemy, as self-destructive and impractical as she was gifted and driven. But unlike her, she was not protected by the system that began to emerge in the mid-teens, which allowed stars like Arbuckle and Chaplin, and in rare feminine exception Pickford, to act as free agents, determining their own projects and salaries. Norman's self-named company, formed in 1916, would make only a single film, Mickey. That feature sat on the shelf for nearly two years because of financing problems and production delays. But when Mickey finally did come out, it was a surprise hit, the top-grossing film of 1918. In a wave of popularity reminiscent of the Chaplinitis craze of 1950-1960, Mickey hats, dresses, and dolls flew off the shelves as young female audiences flocked to identify with Mabel's rags-to-riches tomboy heroine. This being the days before licensing or product tie-in campaigns, the studio saw no profit from these ventures, even as Mickey played packed houses and inspired a hit song of the same name. The Mabel Norman Feature Film Company was closing down. Senate never quite got the hang of structuring a feature-length film, and Mickey plays like a series of two-reelers placed end-to-end, some more effective and original than others. But Norman's presence, rambunctious, goofy, mercurial, uncontainable, runs through the indifferent action and tepid romance like a silver thread. As if in an unintended metaphor for the star's own life, the story is built around other characters' attempts to limit and constrain her character's freedom. In one of several climactic scenes, the dauntless Mickey poses as a male jockey to ride a racehorse to a near-spectacular finish until, tellingly, she falls off her horse to show her the finish line, necessitating a rescue from a huge crowd of onlookers that includes her father and her most ardent and ultimately victorious suitor. Watching these scenes, it struck me that the crowd rushing to care for the helpless Mickey serves as a proxy for the audience. 
Norman was like the Marilyn Monroe of the early silent era. The funny, tragic, effervescent woman. A whole generation of viewers longed to step through the screen and rescue. During the last few months of her life in late 1929, spent mostly in a TB sanitarium, some radio shows signed off every night by wishing her good health. Norman's career was far from over when she stopped taking a credited role behind the scenes. But from the mid-teens onward, she fashioned herself a movie star, an object of the camera's gaze, rather than a guider of it. After Mickey, she signed with an up-and-coming producer named Samuel Goldfish, soon to change his name to the more dignified Goldwyn, later of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to make a string of forgettable comedies in between posing for studio glamour shots. According to some unverifiable rumors, she also may have gotten pregnant by Goldwyn, resulting in either an abortion or a late-term miscarriage. At any rate, the fact that her new producer was in constant pursuit of Norman is documented in several sources. Her last feature film was 1923's The Extra Girl, directed by Sennett in a late career attempt to remake himself as a director of sensitive romantic comedies. Its story, perhaps more than in any film Norman made, stands in an ironic commentary on her short-circuited career and life. In what was essentially a remake of 1913 Keystone one-reeler Mabel's dramatic career, Max loved nothing if not recycling old material. She played an ordinary girl who longed to go to Hollywood and get her start in the movies. In Mabel's dramatic career, the fictional Mabel, a lowly scullery maid, had been successful at turning herself into a version of the real-life star, much to the chagrin of her spurned country boy suitor, played by Senate. Ten years later, the extra girl ends on a less triumphant note. After struggling behind the scenes as a wardrobe assistant, Norman's character finally gives up her dreams to marry her childhood sweetheart. The last scene jumps ahead to show her as a contented young mother, watching an old screen test of herself on a home projector with her husband and child. As the film ends, she cradles her toddler in her arms as a title card reads, Darling, hearing him call me mother makes me happier than any career ever could. Mabel continued working well into the 1920s, ending her career making two reelers at the Hell Road Studios, home of Laurel and Hardy, and The Little Rascals. Of the films that survived from this period, at least one, Should Men Walk Home, is quite good, even if her deteriorated physical state is detectable under the clown white makeup she adopted in this period. But as Norman's sporty Gibson girl persona was replaced in popular taste by the sleeker, more jaded flapper type, demand for her particular brand of charm decreased. Her last release film, the now lost short One Hour Married, came in 1927. The following year, increasingly impaired by both tuberculosis and dependence on alcohol, she impulsively married her former Mickey co-star Lou Cody, who was a good friend of Buster Keaton's, and a fellow full-time drinker. The pole-bearers at Norman's funeral in early 1930 included Cody, Sennett, Griffith, Chaplin, and Orbuckle. Were a lineup of fellow luminaries from the silent era that had passed, Keaton was there too among thousands of other mourners, not since Valentino's funeral has there been such a throng, reported the Los Angeles Examiner. 
All of them, even the disgraced Arbuckle, whose career had been cut short by scandal when he was just 34 and who would die of heart failure at 46, got longer lines and more chances at self-reinvention than she did. In that long 1928 interview for Liberty Magazine, a conversation that was as candid as it was, in all likelihood because Norman knew that she was running out of time, she described her first memory of Max Sennett at Biograph in far less romantic terms than those he had used in speaking of her for the remainder of his long life. The second sentence of his autobiography, written almost 40 years after their breakup, reads, Once upon a time I was bewitched by an actress who ate ice cream for breakfast. In the book to follow, he returns again and again to his regrets about never having set up housekeeping with the elusive Norman. At one point observing that maybe I wanted to marry a wife and not an actress. For her part, Norman, opening up to the film journalist and future Warner Brothers animator Sidney Sutherland two years before her death, seems less focused on romantic than professional regrets. She recalls how on her first day on a Griffith film set, she found herself in costume as a page, holding up the train of a noblewoman. My silk-clad legs embarrassed me, and while I was rehearsing, I noticed a stocky, red-faced Irishman leaning against the wall, looking at me and grinning. When she looked back after shooting the scene, Max was gone. I remembered his face, though, and years later, I made a tremendous fortune for that Irishman. I've been reading this evening a chapter from uh, the book Cameraman by Dana Stevens, uh, though the book itself is actually on Buster Keaton, the dawn of cinema and the invention of the 20th century, as the full title gives us. I actually, i got to take a quick look here, I actually was reading chapter 13, and this is about Mabel Norman, and the chapter is called Mabel at the Wheel. Uh, Stevens does a really great uh, job in this book. Um, lots of research on to the early days of cinema. You know, Buster Keaton was born the same year that movies were first exhibited publicly. It's sort of, he's like wrapped up with movies, even though he started out on the stage. But uh, one thing she points out is um, growing up in the 1950s, we saw Keaton all the time. He was always guest starring on all sorts of television shows and variety shows. And, uh, you know, he was still active in the public eye up until his death in like around 1966. Um, and she goes into that and she goes out to the great films he, he made and what she thinks of him and how they were received at the time. But here, living, uh, hidden inside this is this nice little chapter about uh, Mabel Norman. And so uh, I thought they'd make a good uh, presentation here on the show. So um, if you're interested in some of the uh, women that they mentioned in this, like Lois Weber and uh, um, Alice Gee, uh, we've got uh, this uh, set from Kino Lober. It's out both in DVD and Blu-ray called Pioneers. First Women Filmmakers. 
And that's got a lot of these films you, that uh, were talked about by uh, Helen Holmes, you know, jumping onto tr moving trains and riding my motorcycles and stuff. And that's uh, those films are in there as well as uh, a lot of other stuff. So that's a really good set by Kino Lober, Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers is the name of it. And for a little fun uh, book to read, if you get a chance, it's just been re-released as an expanded edition. And that's Lulu in Hollywood by the great Louise Brooks. Uh, in her later life, she uh, did a lot of writing for uh, like Sight and Sound and Film Comment, I think. And she was very insightful, very sharp. And these collect her essays about Hollywood. You know, one, uh, uh, she talked about how, um, you know, when they were transforming everything to sound, they, the talk was always, well, this Will this director be able to direct a sound picture? Can this writer work in sound pictures? Can this actor perform in sound pictures? You know, the question that was never asked was about the producers. Nobody ever said, can this producer do a sound picture? We don't know. No, it's always everyone else's job was in jeopardy, but not the producers. And so her, Louise Brooks's uh, insights are always very fun to read. And uh, so that's a book called Lulu in Hollywood by Louise Brooks. But uh, once again, this evening, very great book on uh, Buster Keaton, uh, Cameraman by uh, Dana Stevens. And that's what we presented here today on uh, Gremlin Time. Well, this is Fortunato, and uh, thanks for listening. This has been the bedtime radio show for, for grown-ups. Uh, we'll be back again uh, next uh, month on the third Monday of uh, August. And so stay tuned right now for Self-Help Radio. Thanks for listening. And this is Fortunato saying, until next time, this is Fortunato. Mm -hmm.